So I was there and I was like super excited because we're the first bank to do something like this. It took us 18 months to build. We beat to market all of the other banks and competitors by 12 months. When it was announced, all these other banks came up to me and they're like, how did you do that? You crushed us by a year. And so I was kind of like euphoria, but something interesting happened. I was in the main conference stage when we were giving our announcement and it was only like 20% full. And I was like, the hell's going on here? Like, this is the biggest conference. I know there are thousands of people here because I saw them all walk in. Where the hell are they? What is going on? This is the biggest news of the conference. Citigroup just shipped something in the space in production live. This is not like a theoretical piece of technology. This is now live. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 110, part two of the So This My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Ian Lee, co-founder of Syndicate, which is a decentralized investing protocol and social network backed by the likes of A16Z, IDEO, Uniswap, Coinbase, OpenSea, Circle, and Ledger, and also the former founding member of IDEO Collab and head of crypto and blockchain city. Now, Ian's story is divided into two parts, so if you haven't listened to part one, please do, because there we talked about how we should measure our lives how Ian pivoted from art to design, then investment banking and consulting, how cancer changed his life, why we shouldn't make 10-year long-term plans and instead pursue the things that interest us most in 12 to 18-month increments and so much more. Meanwhile, this episode deals with other things Web3, how Ian went into banking, was tasked with finding out this thing called Bitcoin, why Ian believed in it so much he kept pushing it forward even though he was at risk of losing his job, how he ended up being the head of crypto and blockchain at City, why he left, and what he's trying to achieve for his current Web3 company, Syndicate. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. You mentioned earlier your time at City when you were head of crypto and blockchain. And you mentioned that you were basically tasked with looking into Bitcoin at the time for City, at a time where people were afraid they would be fired. And I wonder if you could just share a bit about that period of just exploring Bitcoin and basically being a champion at a time where internally there wasn't any support at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not too dissimilar from me being ridiculed as an art major <laughs> by, you know, You're bankers. used to it now. Um, also bankers, incidentally. So I joined City's venture arm and innovation arm in 2014. This was before crypto. This was, you know, the word crypto. This is before Ethereum. It was just Bitcoin. 2014 was also uh, a very bad year. Bitcoin hit an all-time low, I think of like 150 or 175 dollars in 2014. It had crashed from 1,200 dollars because of Mount Gox in late 2013, early 2014, and because of Mount Gox, you know, which was a very big event in the Bitcoin and, and crypto space, it led to this really protracted bear market in Bitcoin and crypto for years until I would say 2017 is when things, 2016, 2017 is when things started coming back. So if you think about that time, right, it was actually a very bad time to be in Bitcoin as an entrepreneur, as a VC, and especially as someone at a bank when 
figures like Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan were saying very publicly that Bitcoin was a fraud and it was useless technology that was going to die. And so I came in in 2014 and I was a new guy. And I tell this story a lot because it's an example of where it's very random and emergent is that the first two weeks, well, the first week that I joined the company, I went in the office and my computer that was being issued by IT hadn't arrived and it wasn't going to arrive until later that week. So I was sitting at my desk with no computer and nothing to do. <laughs> I went around and said hi. And after I had done that, and I still had nothing to do, I went to my manager and said, I have like a good few days before my computer comes. Like, is there something that I can look into while I'm sitting here? And her name's Debbie. She became one of my greatest life mentors. And I still keep in contact with her to this day. She was like, yeah, why don't you look into this thing called Bitcoin? Because no one's looking at it. Most people don't think it's that interesting. They're pretty skeptical. But I don't know. I've been hearing that a lot of developers and entrepreneurs are like building around it or something. And I was like, okay, sure. I don't know what this thing is, but I'll go look into it and let you know in a couple of days. So I Googled Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin? <laughs> like, and it brought me to Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper. And I asked one of the people in the office to help me print it out because I, again, I didn't have a computer. I started reading this white paper, this 10-page PDF that was actually released on October 31st, Halloween of 2008. And I read it and I was like, okay, first of all, I was like, whoa, this is very different. I have no idea. This looks like hieroglyphics to me. And number two, it was deeply mathematical. And so I was like, that's really interesting. Like, I love math. I hadn't, you know, done anything that was professionally related to math in more than a decade. And I was like, this seems kind of fun. And it was, if any of you have read the Bitcoin white paper, which I think everyone should, it's very it's, dense. And surprisingly short. It's surprisingly very short, but it's very concise and dense. Like it doesn't um, walk you through any background or anything. It just jumps straight into things like SHA-256, like an encryption methods and stuff. And it doesn't like provide any context. It just says like, and we're using, you know, SHA-256 for X, Y, Z, right? So these are all new concepts to me. I open up my personal computer and I start just Googling and Wikipedia all these terms. And literally what I thought would take me just 30 minutes, it ended up taking me three full days to read that white paper and actually understand the concepts of what all these things were referencing. And at the end of those three days, I was looking at it and everyone was at the time, especially at the bank saying, okay, this thing is a digital currency. It is a fake currency for money laundering and illicit payments. And what I saw was something totally different. What I saw was an open stack, an open fintech stack. That's that's what I saw in the white paper. It didn't have a word, which ended up becoming blockchain as a platform, right? It didn't have a word, but I knew that what I saw in it was a platform, actually, a technology platform for fintech that was completely open. And the reason that that was so powerful to me was because prior to joining Citigroup, at my consulting company, as I was mentioning earlier, at Deloitte, I was studying the impact of SaaS and AI on different industries, right? And one of the biggest disruptions in the world of software 
was SaaS, but also APIs, right? And one of the biggest disruptions was actually these open software systems like Android and iOS, where via their SDKs, and even Facebook and other companies were doing this, via their SDKs, they were enabling ecosystems of external developers to build applications on top of their platforms. And that was disrupting you know, many areas of software and many industries, right? So when I looked at Bitcoin, that's what I saw. I saw a open software system for fintech applications that actually didn't even have APIs. It was just completely open, meaning anyone could build an app, a fintech application on top of Bitcoin without even having to be permissioned into an open, into an API-based system. And furthermore, that system was completely decentralized and lived openly on the global internet. And when I realized that within, you know, it took me again, like three to four days to read through that. I knew that this thing was way bigger than a digital currency. And so within that first week, I went back to my manager at the end of the week and I said, Hey, this Bitcoin thing that you made me like go look at, number one, it's super interesting. It's really, really interesting. And number two, it's way bigger than the bank is thinking and people are thinking. And I think that we need to invest in this more. And she was an executive actually from Apple and eBay and other places. So she's seen kind of like how these kind of small innovations, particularly on the developer side, have impacted different industries. So she was like, let's do it. Like, so what we did was we started actually utilizing a lot of the capabilities that we were in possession of to fund research and development across Citigroup inside of the IT organizations in different parts of the bank to understand more deeply at a technical level, the architecture of Bitcoin and how it might be utilized to be applied by the banking sector and, and companies like Citigroup in a way that made sense. But while we were doing those things, <clears throat> and I was starting to tell more and more people in the bank that Bitcoin and then eventually blockchain was going to be a really big deal, there was incredible resistance. Most of those people, they didn't come from the world of technology. They came from the world of finance or business. Most of them you know, were on the Jamie Dimon party line that this thing was the fraud. Many of them advised me that if I wanted to have a career at Citigroup, that I should stop looking into Bitcoin and stop working on it. And, you know, coming all the way back to where we started, right? It was one of those things where it was like, okay, the better thing that everyone is telling me for my career is focus on X, Y, and Z. But what I'm genuinely most interested in and I really believe in is this whatever this thing is, which I'm not really sure where it's going, what it's going to develop into. I had no idea that Ethereum was going to eventually come about and all these other things after that. But you know, I was just interested in it and, and the problem space that it could potentially solve. And I just went into that. I mean, obviously, I did my job and did it well, but I found more and more time, especially on the nights and weekends even, to investigate this technology and spend more time in it. I went to conferences. The Bitcoin community was obviously very small back then. And like, it was very weird for a Citigroup person to be showing up, much less like supporting it publicly. Did they look um, at you suspiciously because you're from an institution? Yeah. Yeah, they did. <laughs> definitely. <clears throat> I mean, a lot of them were, you know, the, the cy cyberpunk 
folks, which, you know, I've, I've become friends with that a lot of them. They exist precisely to overthrow you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I think like, you know, they saw maybe like in me, like an ally or something. Maybe they saw an ally in me to help them with their cause or something, which, you know, genuinely I was there because I was interested to learn from them and potentially collab- at some point collaborate with them. So I started getting involved in a startup accelerator focused on Bitcoin, publicly giving talks in public supported Bitcoin while I was at the bank, started engaging in a number of internal activities across the bank to develop, further develop the technology and understand its capabilities and limits. But that was a very interesting time. And I just went with what I thought was most interesting. And and it just so happened that six to nine months later, one of the biggest events was that Goldman Sachs decided to invest in circles, I think, 30 or $50 million Series A. And that turned a lot of heads in the banking industry where people were going, wait a minute, if Goldman's doing that, are we the stupid ones? And so at that point, you know, I wish I wish it was because of my own skills and my own ideas, but it was because of that that actually like I started getting invited into back into these board meetings or executive meetings where they were saying, okay, what is this Bitcoin thing? And like tell us about it. Tell us why you think Goldman is interested in this thing. And because I was like the only guy who had been pulling on that thread in the bank for so long, I became the head of crypto and Bitcoin during that time. But it was months and months of colleagues thinking that I was basically wasting my time. Weren't you working with Ken Moore as well, who was head of City Innovation Labs in Dublin, and you were yes. mining Citicoin? What was that experience like? <laughs> yeah, Ken Moore. Yeah, yeah. If Ken Moore is listening to this, tell him, email me, please, after all these years. And Dave Fleming as well, and Maya Lopsevich, who are all at MasterCard now. And Ken Moore is now head of innovation at MasterCard, the chief innovation officer at MasterCard, which is amazing. So yeah, Ken Moore, he was the head of the innovation lab in Ireland, which was one of the most advanced in terms of technical development research and also have been one of the actually the area the plate the lab where we develop most of our technical capability in the area of blockchain and one of the first projects that that my manager and I had funded was this research and development project we literally forked the bitcoin network and started running it internally on cities systems to understand how the consensus mechanism worked how the ledger kind of updated how mining worked like conceptually and technically. We forked the Bitcoin network and ran it. We weren't mining Bitcoin on the public network, but we were, you know, mining, I guess, on the fork of Bitcoin. And we actually forked a number of other systems only to understand the differences between these consensus mechanisms, ones that were more decentralized like Bitcoin, and then ones that were more centralized, and then ones that were kind of like hybrid in the middle. And we were running these things first to understand them. And then second, to see if we could overlay actually like a payment system and a payment solution on top of these things and what that would look like and what the pros and cons of those were. And so that project was dubbed CityCoin, kind of as just an internal code name for that project. It wasn't necessarily to like actually design a, a city group coin. But there was a conference that Ken Moore was at, which if he's listening to this, he'll laugh at where, you know, it was like a two to three hour conference with a bunch of press there. They were asking about things that City was working on and excited about. It was like two to three hours long. And there was this 
one little snippet where he mentioned the Citicoin project, 10 seconds. And it was just that that got picked up in TechCrunch. Mark and Jason started tweeting about it. We started getting calls from regulators saying, are you building a cryptocurrency? And this is not okay. So it created a bunch of problems for Ken Moore specifically. So that's how uh, all the articles came. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was like 2014, I think, or 2015 at the latest. But we were pretty far ahead in our understanding of like the technology and its applications and its limitations. And, you know, that was the first project. But by the time I had left Citigroup two years later, we had over 30 internal projects, dozens of initiatives, like projects that had turned into serious initiatives and over a half dozen external investments into blockchain startups. So it started with that. But by the time I had left in 2017, we were pretty far along. Unfortunately, I left, Ken Moore left, Dave Fleming left, a bunch of other people left that were kind of part of that core, I think kind of stagnated for a little bit. I know that they've been more active recently in terms of hiring up in the digital asset space. But you know, Ken Moore, myself, Dave Fleming, and, and a number of others were sort of at the center of a lot of the development at Citigroup. When you left, wasn't Citi one of the most active institutional banks investing alongside Goldman and Google? So what yeah. was it? That- yeah, there was a chart actually that showed, I think it was like CB Insights and the top yeah three organizations by a long margin were, yeah, Google Ventures, Goldman and Citi Ventures or Citigroup. Why did you decide to leave when clearly you had won the battle and City was interested <laughs> in entering this. Well, I, I would I would not say that we won the battle, much less have they won the battle yet. I guess this is all connected, right? Funny story is that in 2018, I went to the biggest conference in the industry called Consensus by CoinDesk. And it was in New York. And that year there were, I don't know, several thousand people. It was like the biggest conference, blockchain conference in history at that point in time. The Wall Street Journal. Like everyone was there. And I was really excited because we were launching a product that I had helped fund and build and even conceive. And it was a payment network built on a blockchain system that was in active production with live customers like NASDAQ, like really big customers. And it even showed up in the Wall Street Journal that day that we announced it at the conference at Consensus on the main stage. So I was there and I was like super excited because we're the first bank to do something like this. It took us 18 months to build. We beat to market all of the other banks and competitors by 12 months. When it was announced, all these other banks came up to me and they're like, how did you do that? You crushed us by a year. And so I was kind of like euphoria, but something interesting happened. I was in the main conference stage when we were giving our announcement. And it was only like 20% full. And I was like, the hell's going on here? <laughs> like, this is the biggest conference. I know there are thousands of people here because I saw them all walk in. Where the hell are they? What is going on? This is the biggest news of the conference. Citigroup just shipped something in the space in production live. This is not like a theoretical piece of technology. This is now live. Where the hell is everybody? So I, I went outside and I started looking around. And down the hallway in this little side conference room where they had the different breakouts, in this one breakout room, there were hundreds of people streaming out of this door. (laughs) I was like, what the hell is 
in that room. There's something going on in that room that I don't know about. Nudged my way to the door because you literally couldn't get in. There was standing room only. It only had capacity for maybe like 100 to 150 people. But there were literally like 500 people kind of like trying to get in. And I was sort of like looking over people's shoulders and through the doorway at the stage, I could peer and peek at a few people on that stage. And one of them was Vitalik. And he was on that stage. And he was talking about this new standard that had launched on Ethereum, which at that point in time had just been launched. Like it was super early. And everyone was like, especially in the enterprise space, super skeptical of it. Oh, this thing is like not going to be a thing. And he was talking about the standard that they had just launched and created on Ethereum called ERC20. And I was like, the hell is ERC20? Everyone was talking about ERC20. So I went back to San Francisco because the conference was in New York after it had ended. And I was like, what the hell just happened? Like the whole industry like was focused on blockchain. Now all the smartest developers and startups are talking about ERC20. What is this thing ERC20? So I start like the Bitcoin white paper reading into ERC20 and what ERC20 obviously now is, but it was back then was the standard for anyone to be able to launch their own fungible token on top of Ethereum. And I was like, what the hell is this? Why would you do this? Why would anyone want to launch their own cryptocurrency on Ethereum, much, much less? And then this concept of a decentralized application that would utilize that ERC-20, like why would anyone do that? And so I literally just started going down the rabbit hole again. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't tell if it was real. I couldn't tell if it was fake or or going to be you know completely stupid. All I knew was that a lot of smart people were excited about it. And so I just went in with this curiosity. And this was in mid-2017. These things that then became referred to as ICOs started popping up. And I started kind of learning about these things, like these ICOs. Also had my reservations about it, like many people did, like, oh, these things are some of them were definitely scams and frauds played out kind of that way legally over time. But just like Bitcoin and just like blockchain and everything in crypto, 90% of it was noise. But then there was like 5 to 10% of it that was really strong signal if you looked deeply enough. When I found that signal, I was like, oh my God, this is huge. I have no idea what it's going to lead to, but it is really disruptive. And so I tried to figure out, like find where that signal was. So I found it in like 0x, for example, which, you know, still growing to this day, there were like projects kind of like that, like even Decentraland, for example, was like conceived around that time way, way back then. And once I found that signal, I kept trying to find more and more signal. And once after a couple months of just engaging with these ERC-20s, it was one of those moments again for me where it was like, I don't fully know where this thing is leading. It may lead to nothing, but I cannot stop obsessing about this. I'm reading this on my nights and weekends. I'm literally spending all my intellectual energy trying to like go into this and understand it, follow that. And so I put in my two-week notice to Citigroup. They were kind of like, what the hell are you doing? Where is this coming from? And I was just like, I've got to go into this this field. I've just got to get closer to it. And I know it's not going to happen here. Unfortunately, I just need to get closer to the action. And so I left 
you know, th- there wasn't really like something perfectly lined up for me after that. But uh, yeah, I just, I just decided that I, I needed to get closer to the action. And where that led me to was this division of IDEO that I helped them create in 2015 focused on crypto that had been working with a lot of these ERC-20 based startups like Augur back in 2017 and joined that team to help with. But, you know, from there led to a lot of things, right? You know, it led to the creation of a venture firm. It led to NFTs eventually, led to DeFi, led to DAOs, led to syndicate. But it started with this random thing that I didn't know anything about, but just became really interested in. That's the thing that fascinated me. You quit without a clear view of what was happening in the future. And you joined IDEO, which is where the first mouse and laptop was invented. And you didn't just join IDEO. You created a whole new entity within IDEO focused on crypto research. How did that happen? Well, uh, there were people at IDEO that that were already creating this new division called the CoLab, which was actually very much modeled after the MIT Media Lab, meaning that it was a research lab within IDEO that would do technical research into emerging technologies and their ability to create new products, businesses, and industries in the future. So I think very IDEO-like. Now, what it directed it at was TBD, right? They were looking at things like synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, AR, VR, and also cryptocurrencies and blockchains. I got involved as one of the initial partners of that lab in 2015 on the crypto and blockchain research side and became one of their founding members and helped them build up that research lab as an external partner. And then eventually I joined it full-time in 2017, two years later. I had helped them construct that lab as a partner from the beginning. When I joined IDEO and that lab specifically, I mean, it was very, it's very different. Isn't known for that kind of structure or kind of work even, like deep technical research into emerging technologies. And so it was very new for them as a company. But culturally, IDEO is this kind of amazing place, unlike a lot of other traditional corporations, where they really foster and embrace creativity and experimentation and honestly, like personal and creative passion. So when people have like these kind of instincts about, hey, we should just create like this technical research lab inside of IDEO, like IDEO's first kind of inclination is actually not like, why would we do that? It's like, yeah, let's do that and like kind of support it and see where it goes. So culture, organizationally, it wasn't familiar, but culturally it was very in line with IDEO's philosophy. And so even though like it didn't really map to a lot of things that the rest of IDEO was doing, it was very well supported culturally in the organization at the highest of levels. And so from that perspective, we were given a lot of room and support to pursue these passions, these ideas, and these weird opportunities in the areas of crypto. So when you were at IDEO, that's where you met your now co-founder, Will. And at the time, you had no intention of working together, but now you clearly are. So how has that relationship developed, essentially? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it sort of connects two threads, one around mentorship which feel like there's a lot of mutual mentorship between him and I, even though he's much more talented and much younger than I am. I, I, I learned so much from him all the time. And the second thing is around, you know, just kind of going with your interests and your energy. Will was a research fellow that joined the lab in 
2018, which was incidentally the next big crypto bear market right after ICOs. He came in to do research in the area of artificial intelligence because his background was actually natural language processing. That was his first startup while he was at Stanford. He was in the world of NLP. And so he came in to do stuff in the research lab, which was broader than blockchain and crypto in the area of AI and NLP. I was in the blockchain side of the lab. I didn't really have much to do with AI and what he was researching. So we didn't work together. But what we did do was we started running into each other in the snack room and we just started talking. And I don't know, we liked talking to each other. He was like a funny guy. We just really enjoyed having conversations. And those conversations went from five minutes to 10 minutes to 30 minutes to an hour to like two hours, sometimes three hours where we literally like lose track of time and forget that we had actually work to go back to. (laughs) And that was basically our relationship for like months where we would just go into the snack room and come out hours later and forget what we were supposed to do. And very naturally at some point, you know, we were just talking about all sorts of things like not even, you know, work-related things. It was stuff about life, stuff about philosophy, government, economics, just everything, technology. And at some point we we just, you know, started realizing that we had a lot of similar views about the world the problems and the ways in which they should be approached in terms of how how to solve them, even though our backgrounds were totally different. Months later, we just started saying like, hey, maybe we should like work on something with all these ideas and stuff. Like we should go kind of do something. I actually pulled him into some of the work that I was doing around decentralized social networks. And he kind of had an interest in that because he has this experience in gaming as well as I think he had worked at Yelp or something like that around moderate content moderation and using like AI to and other tool technologies to moderate content on the internet. There definitely is like a moderation element to social networks, right? So he kind of had some interest in that. And so we started working on researching future applications of decentralized social networks back in 2018. We did that for a number of months. We discovered back then that the primary application of such a protocol would actually be for the purpose of investing, which we didn't expect at the time. We thought it was, I thought it was going to be around collaboration, communications, and commerce, actually. So when investing came out, I was like, no, that's kind of weird. And then the other thing that we realized was that the idea was way ahead of its time. It was like way, it was like many years too early. So we ended up pausing the pro, we put the project on ice. He went to a digital identity startup and I went, became, you know, I started the VC fund and, spun it out of IDEO and invested in primarily DeFi. And it was in 2020, so two years later, where the infrastructure, namely DeFi infrastructure, now existed for that concept around investing in a decentralized social network to now exist. And Will and I regrouped during the pandemic, actually, because at that time, deal flow and stuff on the VC side had come to a halt just because the global economy had come to a halt. So I actually had time to like kind of take a step back and think. And it was at that time where I took a bunch of classes during the pandemic to learn how to program Solidity, which is the language of Ethereum. And I started building some stuff and it kind of led me back to that idea. 
that we had researched. And so Will and I reconnected in 2020 and we said, wait a minute, like we can actually, rather than orienting around a social network, let's orient around solving the problems in, in, in the investing world. And the infrastructure is now ready for this idea to exist. And that became Syndicate. We both went into it full-time in 2021, which is when we created the company. So, I mean, it was kind of a fairly quick decision once once we saw that everything was in place, but it had been built on more than two years of research and deep thinking in a different domain and a friendship that had started without the intention of ever starting a company together. What were some of the interesting or surprising developments as you're running Seneca? I learned that you also have groups from universities who are joining who just want to learn about investing together. Were these expected target groups that were going to join syndicate or is it something beyond expectation i think that a lot of people have asked us give us an analogy for syndicate like is it the angel list of crypto and web3 or you know whatever and that's really kind of not our mental model for this company and the impact that it can have the analogy that we like to give is that syndicate could do to the investing world what youtube did to media which is to say that like the big impact of YouTube was not about taking movies and putting them onto YouTube. Like, does it happen? Yeah. It does it happen where people put venture funds and run them on syndicate? Sure. But the big idea is that YouTube created billions of new creators and profoundly more content than Hollywood films because it enabled anyone to become a creator. And that is kind of abstractly what we think the impact of syndicate can be, which is, you know, the world of investing is extremely unfair. The inequalities that result from the structural inequities of investing are not tenable for society, in my opinion. And so what has to happen is that more people, as many people in the world, need to be invested. It doesn't mean they have to become a professional investor. Like, actually, I wouldn't advise that to a lot of people. I mean, investing is not everyone's cup of tea and it's not necessarily that exciting, but everyone does need to find ways to become invested in the future. Number one, to participate in the development of that future, but number two, also participate in the incredible wealth and upside that is generated from building the future. And not enough of the world is invested in building the future or shaping the future. So the way in which that happens is like YouTube, where it enables people that didn't think of themselves as creators to now become creators. In the same way, Syndicate can radically democratize these tools and this infrastructure to enable people that didn't think of themselves as investors to invest. And so we've always had this idea that, yeah, the big impact is not about putting Hollywood movies on YouTube. It's not about putting traditional venture capital funds on syndicate or on the blockchain. It's about unlocking these new communities and users that didn't think of themselves as investors, but now are getting involved. So what we didn't know is what communities those would be. We just kind of believe that there would be a number and they would sort of surprise us. So one of the things that we have found is, yeah, like a lot of the communities that have popped up are actually from the university and education ecosystems, whether it's colleges or master's programs or even alumni networks, where these sometimes 
student clubs are using syndicate to invest together. And it's not even like a lot, you know, we're, we're talking like a few hundred dollars in total, like across all of these people, maybe sometimes a little bit more. But the primary reason that they're doing it is actually not to like get rich or whatever. The reason that they're doing it is to learn actually with each other. They're trying to like learn about how to invest. They're trying to learn about the technologies and the assets in which they're investing in. They're trying to build experience, skill sets, relationships with maybe the things that they're investing in or with others that are providing mentorship. So from that perspective, it's a beautiful thing because it's not about financializing everything and profit and profit motive. It's actually for a much more important purpose, which is about education and learning and growth and experience and skill set building and relationship building, which is really, really exciting to see. If I wanted to learn about investing, how is, say, a group of us meeting on Zoom every week to learn about investment different from being in an investment club on the syndicate and also learning about investment? Yeah, yeah. So having been a VC for almost a decade, right? There's something very different when you're using real money, number one, you're using your own money, number two, and more, and even the next level of that is using or interacting with other people's money. It's very different. For example, trading my own personal portfolio and making bad stock trades, that sucks for me, but I wouldn't get a phone call from someone else saying like, what the hell's going on, right? But when I became a venture capitalist and investing in other people's money and lots of it, that's different. It's a different level of both stress, but also it's a different level of seriousness and kind of rigor that you apply, right? When you do that. So traditionally, right, if you want to gain that experience of co-investing with other people's money, that's not easy using traditional systems and systems that are not crypto-based and are not ones like syndicate. So that experience is actually like if I'm if I'm thinking about it from like an education perspective for like these student clubs, right? That experience is actually very untainable. And many people do want to become professional investors or they want to at least like be exposed to it and learn about it. So getting that experience is almost impossible, right? You can go on a Zoom or you can go to a classroom and discuss kind of opportunities, but you never really like get to where the rubber meets the road and like where actual critical decision-making or debates or hard decisions or trade-offs or choices are made. But for example, you know, you can go on syndicate, you can create an investment club with a group of friends or a group of colleagues or classmates or whatever that you trust. Please do it with people that you trust. It could be two people, it could be groups larger than that. And you can either create this investment club on Ethereum for basically just the cost of the gas fees of the Ethereum network, which depending on the network congestion can range between $10 to sometimes, you know, if the network is congested with all these NFTs and stuff, like sometimes $40 in gas, or you can go to Polygon because Syndicate also deployed to Polygon and you can create an investment club or DAO for 0.4 cents. So it's practically free, right? And run this investment club completely on the blockchain with no backend. So effectively, we've taken all of the tools of a venture fund that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal work and made that effectively free to any group to create in less than 30 seconds. And what that means is that now a student group or a class or whatever 
can create an investment club, seed it with $20 in a matter of a minute and get to the actual learnings and experience of what it means to be an investor, as opposed to apprenticing or looking at it from afar and reading articles, not taking that first step. Syndicate makes it very easy just to take a small but first step in that learning journey. You also have another offering, Collectives, which ties back very much to what you and we were basically researching, Bank Ideo, the idea of decentralized social networks. What is Collectives and how does it work? Yes. Yeah. So Collectives is another tool we launched at Syndicate in September of this year. So pretty recently. And what it does is it enables anyone or any community to create a social network on the blockchain using that tool. And the way that it does that is the social network is created via NFTs, actually, that are launched to users and members of that social network. And what that enables the users of that social network to do are snap that social network on chain into other applications that also are compatible with NFTs, and which are pretty much every Web3 application, including Syndicate. So for example, you can create an investment club or DAO and then utilize the NFTs to actually, for example, permission access to joining that investment club as one small example. But you can also utilize that social network for governance and voting systems like Snapshot, even like, for example, doing things where you can use the NFTs as a way to gate access to virtual or in-person events, even like online documents or communications platforms like Telegram or Discord or Google Drive. So you can actually like utilize these social networks on the blockchain in combination with other Web3 applications to deliver different forms of utility and applications to the members of that social network. Now, where we're going with this is like, we have this social networking tool, we have this investing protocol and tool. And now what we can do on top of those two systems is actually build new systems that leverage both. And so that's some of the stuff that we're currently working on, which we're really excited about. Are you working towards, Balaji was recently on Lex Freeman's podcast. Are you working towards bringing to life Balaji's vision of this network stake? Right. <laughs> yeah. Stack. yeah. Yeah. I, I, I listened to several hours of that nine hour podcast, which is phenomenal. Balaji is actually an investor in Syndicate and he's just incredible. And actually, like, you know, funny thing is that Balaji had this idea of a pseudonymous economy in 2018 and also pseudonymous social networks in 2018, right around the time that Will and I were working on it, that became Syndicate. And Balaji's recent book and also work in this area of network states is super interesting. I think what maybe Syndicate's role in that might be, I think network states is, to be honest, a, a much larger idea. This idea of like digital citizenship and, and governments and countries, which is pretty profound. I do think though that like investing and capital and resource allocation to enable the creation, operation, maintenance, and growth of network states is going to be really critical component to network states. And so it's possible, yeah, that syndicate 
um, and its infrastructure might help enable network states or be a part of enabling network states. It's not like syndicates going is a network state or is about helping create network states, but its technologies and infrastructure and protocols could be used to help enable them, which I think if you listen to Bology's podcast and read his book, I mean, it's pretty compelling. Just before we wrapped up, I was fascinated to hear that the kind of collectors you have now, only 5 to 10% are actually from investment clubs, and most of them are actually completely new. And you have collectors that have like Harvard alumni or even love Singapore rice dishes. How are these collectors basically functioning? And how can people think about the kind of collectives they might want to basically create? Yeah, we've seen a pretty incredible diversity, as you mentioned, like podcasts, fan clubs of Singaporean rice dishes globally, which that that one was probably one of the most creative. Harvard Business School alumni, student organizations, venture capital funds, etc. It's sort of up to people's imagination. I mean, obviously, like how they get used within syndicates, other tools is pretty opinionated in terms of being used for the purposes of investing or investing related kind of applications. But the tool collectives was designed to be maximally composable, meaning that you could create a collective and then use it outside of syndicate, use it within a voting system like Snapshot or like an event system, event management system like Gatekeeper. So the possibilities are pretty limitless. If you're building an investment community, or you're already running one and you have been running one. Like a lot of angel investors, for example, have been co-investing with a network of friends and people for years, just over like email and digital communication. Those might be good to consider bringing into collectives and experimenting with what that would look like if it was on chain, because we're going to be building tools and capabilities to further level up those networks and those communities with our products. Outside of that, if you're not like investing related or a community that might want to do investing, which I would argue most do, then you know you can kind of have fun with it. It's again not that expensive to launch a collective on syndicate. What you can do with it is pretty fun, as you can tell. So I would say if a community or a social network, or you're going to build one, no matter how small, like it could be five people or big, it could be tens of thousands of people you can go here and go to collectives and launch one. And that's the thing is like, because it's so inexpensive, you can just launch it. And if it doesn't work out, no big deal. But if it does organically emerge into something really exciting and cool, then not only will it hopefully be really valuable, but also you'll have learned a lot of things along the way in terms of how to utilize these technologies and be able to interact with them and be able to interlink them via composability with these technologies in Web3. And I so appreciate you being with me for such a long time. I would love to end this interview by using the same questions I always ask all my guests. The first is this, do you feel like you have found your why after going through so many different career paths? So the update to my emergent strategy is that I think you just keep doing that until you do find a calling. And I think I have found one in what I'm working on now to solve broader issues of inequality by revolutionizing and reformatting investing. I do still believe, though, that people can have multiple callings in life. So it's possible that there are others for me. But right now, like this is something that I plan to dedicate my life to for a very long time. 
It sounds like you believe everyone has at least one calling. Would that be right? Maybe. I, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I haven't thought. It's too difficult for me to think about other people's callings, let alone mine. But, you know, I do think that people, yeah, we'll find something that's worth dedicating more than a 12 to 18 month period of their life to. And so whether or not that's a calling, I don't know. But eventually people will stumble upon it, something like that. What about a legacy? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Hmm. I mean, this would be a long conversation, but I would say the TLDR is that I think a lot of my life has been the result of my ancestors sacrificing and doing a lot of work to open up doors for later generations that they would never see, like myself. And so I see my, I guess, calling in many ways, and, and also, I don't know about legacy, but the dent that I want to make in the world is to open up more doors for communities and generations that need that. And it doesn't mean like my specific lineage, my specific ancestry or ethnicity. It means others as well, because other communities outside of mine have also opened up doors for me and my community. So I think it's important that I help do the same based on the platform and tools that I have. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Hmm. It's an interesting question. Coming back to what I've said is just the courage and the resilience to do what you are genuinely most excited about and interested in. I, I think that's actually very difficult, especially when that choice about what it is that you're most excited about is least attractive financially, less attractive in terms of reputation or status. When other people that are close to you are telling you that, that people that you respect and admire and look up to and trust, like, are telling you that that's a bad idea. I think that, like, had I done that, I would probably be in a very different industry and in a job that I hate. People who I've seen as being successful are people that have had the courage to do what they believe in, whatever that may be, in whatever field it may be. A slight extension on that question. Those you've seen who are successful, are they actually happy? <laughs> well, there's no correlation. I don't. I don't think you know a lot of a lot of because there's so many of, successful uh, people who are very unhappy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of studies that have shown that like above a certain income level, like happiness is not really correlated with income. Justin can say, yeah, that yeah, and I've, I've, you know, had the opportunity to travel in different places of the world where some of the people that I've come and encounter with have very little, but are way happier than. I was, or many people that have infinitely more than they do. It's made me realize that there is no correlation. I think that happiness is very personal and, and it's, it's really about like whether you've lived a life with no regrets, which I often have nothing to do with money. It's more about whether or not you had the courage to self actualize, try to self actualize. Whether you had agency over your own life, you feel like you've ha you had agency over your own life, or whether you felt like you gave in to what society told you about how to live your life and regrets about that. So I don't think there's any correlation. That said, there are a lot of very successful people that have a lot of resources that are very, very happy. And that's that's amazing. So the perfect you know, place. it's not negatively correlated either. It's just uncorrelated. Where can people go to find out more about what you're doing, support you, contact you? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm on Twitter. My handle is Ian Dows. 
that's how committed I am to, I guess, <laughs> what I'm doing. So yeah, you, you can find me there. And that's where I share a lot of updates and a lot of the things that I'm honestly like most interested in. That's one of the things that I've found surprisingly interesting about Twitter is that it allows me to blurt out these things that I'm passionate about, not in even 12 to 18 month increments, but literally like 30 second increments and throw it out into the void. Do you think your relationship with Twitter would change? <laughs> oh, with yeah, with the acquisition? Yes. It's a good question. I, I don't know. I'm cautiously optimistic over the, over the long run. I think there's a lot of things that are happening right now that seem really different and seem scary. I'm cautiously optimistic for the long term. That said, I mean, you know, one of the interesting things is that there's been a pretty incredible proliferation of alternative platforms. Jack Dorsey. Yeah, Jack Dorsey with Blue Sky yeah. Social that was announced recently. There's also a couple others in the Web3 space like Lens Protocol and Farcaster and a number of other things. And so not because of Twitter, like the acquisition of Twitter, but because of I'm just like genuinely interested in testing new technologies, engaging in them and We'll see what happens. And is Maybe there, I'll be on all of them, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered so far? No, I mean, I, I love, I would just say that I love the spirit of this podcast. I love the idea of getting behind people, not like on the surface level, but what drives them. And yeah, I hope that maybe someone's made it all the way to the end of this podcast. I'm not even sure <laughs> if that's even true, but if you're one of those people, and anything that I've shared with you resonates with you, or you feel like you are like me, then know that everything's going to be fine. And actually just let go of all that agonization and just embrace the mystery of life. So hopefully that helps you actually find what it is you're looking to do. And that was the end of episode 110, part two. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywhy.com forward slash 110. And do stick around for this Sunday because we'll be meeting a founder who's running one of the hottest newsletters on all things Southeast Asian startups. From how she decided not to go to college, to pursuing the things that interested her most, and founding a newsletter that solved a particular pain point in her life. It's a great episode, so do stick around. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. Did you know we're on YouTube? And see you this Sunday. <laughs>